we, after we came out with the study, had people on both sides using it as evidence to support their point. So we had people that were saying, look, there's statistically significant spread in the community when you have in-person schooling, so we should have less in-person schooling. And the other side would say, look, the, the amount of in-person community spread is relatively small, and so we should have more in-person schooling. And so the fact that both sides are using it to try to support their argument is exactly what we want. The safety of our classrooms is on topic with IU. My name is Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University Bloomington. Today, I'm joined by Michael Pollack, an economist and director of the Center for Economic Education Research at Indiana University Northwest in Gary, Indiana. Dr. Pollack, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Kenny. Middle of the summer, Governor Holcomb has said all of Indiana schools are planning to be open in the fall. If that goal is achieved, it makes the beginning of a far more routine school year than last year. Even how the last school year ended, where some schools across the state were in person, others were operating in a more remote style. So some parents are now wondering how safe their kiddos will be this fall. And this is why we've asked you to join us today, Dr. Pollock. You've been a part of a research team that studied this very scenario based on the way schools were operated this past year in Indiana. And that's yielded some perhaps interesting data for next year. So before we dive deeply into this, what would be the dinner party explanation for what you're looking at in this study? So what we're looking at is trying to put some kind of estimate on how much in-person instruction affects the spread of COVID-19 in the community to try to give people a baseline to be able to better evaluate the risk of in-person schools. So I'm going well back into my micro and macroeconomics classes, and that's a long time ago now for me, but I suspect that cost-benefit principle is going to come into play here. Explain a bit about that for us, what it is, cost-benefit principle, how it informs your study. Absolutely. So one of the most fundamental uh, concepts in economics is the cost-benefit principle, which simply says do something if the benefit is more than the cost. And this plays very closely to the debates over you know, in-person schooling because most people have a pretty good idea of what the benefits of schooling is. I mean, they, they send their kids to school, they learn, they socialize, um, they get all the benefits of being in school. Um, and there's not too much disagreement there, but there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uh, lack of information about the costs of in-person schooling during a pandemic like COVID-19. And so what we're trying to do is put numbers as, as close as we can on what the costs of having in-person schooling are. So if you want to increase the amount of in-person schooling by 25%, how much does that lead to more cases in the community? So if we bring our actuarial tables out, it's really about risk reward. Is it worth the convenience of double parking or the risk of possibly getting that ticket if the police officer comes back before I move the car? That sort of thing, right? Yes, and a lot of the disagreement and the controversy over opening schools is not about the safety of the kids. We all want our kids to be safe. The disagreement is almost always over how risky is it to be in person, right? So people that are you know, very opposed to having in-person schooling have this idea that it's very risky to be in person. Those that are maybe in favor of in-person schooling have the idea that it's not at all risky. And so the disagreement isn't over whether, you know, in school is valuable or not, but over how much risk are we actually exposing our kids in the community to by having in-person schooling. So let's unpack that a bit. One of the many intriguing things about this particular work, to me at least, is how you're able to use this contemporary classroom uh, as a field study. These are Indiana classes you examined over the last year. So unpack a bit of that data, what you found, how it helped lead you and your publishing colleagues to your conclusions. Yeah, so one of the challenges with studying uh, the effect of in-person schooling and, and, and COVID-19 is that the data coming from the classroom is not always the most reliable 
right? If you're a parent, um, maybe you have an incentive not to get your kid tested if you suspect they might have COVID. Or, you know, if you're a school district, maybe you want to downplay the amount of quarantining um, in, in cases that are going on in your school. And so there have been quite a few studies trying to track how COVID spreads within a school and within a classroom. But the data, again, there are, are very nebulous. It's hard to nail down and be confident what's happening. So the approach we took is in the fall of last year, uh, school districts were, were more or less free to decide how they wanted to reopen. And some reopened entirely in person. Others reopened only online. And we used that, the, the differences in how school districts open to try to evaluate what is the effect, not within the classroom, but on the community spread of COVID-19. Because presumably in-person classes is leading to more spread, which is then going to be amplified in the community. And so we, we tried to essentially kind of step through that middle step of what's actually going on in the classrooms and to see how does, you know, how has a policy of in-person schooling, how does that affect the spread of COVID-19 in the community as a whole? And how the schools ended up operating in this last year really helped you in terms of the data collection, because I understand there was almost a, a, a something statistically, at least, close to a perfect blend of schools that were in person and schools that were operating in a remote fashion. Is that right? Yes, it was, it was very much a na- kind of a perfect natural experiment set up. Because, you know, you have schools all independently kind of doing their own thing. Um, yes, it's informed by the you know, county health department and, and the state to some extent. But the schools were pretty much free to do their own thing. And, and that allowed us to see differences in both first, you know, how schools were reopening and then how that affected, uh, you know, the spread of cases. If all the schools in the state had done the same thing, you know, we could never have gotten this uh, information, kind of these results out of it. And if I can go back to that dinner party idea for a moment, if you and I are at a socially distanced cookout and this comes up, a parent's going to ask you, is it safe? That's the big question. What'd you find here? You want to put some nuance in your answer, I'm sure, but ultimately you explain it how. So um, again, the goal of this is to try to put some numbers. So it's, I don't see my role as saying whether it's safe or not. What I see the, my role in the kind of the role of paper is to say, here's the consequences if we do in-person schooling. As a parent, as a teacher, as a school district, do you want to make, you know, take that risk on or not? Right. But, but the idea is to kind of inform what the risk is. So what I would say in that situation is that schools that opened more in person, we saw statistically significant increase in spread of COVID-19 in those counties. So there was a statistically significant effect. But it was relatively small, so somewhere in the order of one to two and a half percent more cases in the community when you increased uh, in-person instruction by about ten percent. So if you want to, you know, add a few more students in person, maybe go from fifty percent in person to sixty percent in person, we do see an increase in spread twenty-eight days later in the counties. But it, you know, it's relatively small, one to two and a half percent. And so then the question becomes. Is it worth putting 10% more kids in person if it results in one to two percent more cases in the community? And that's a question that then, you know, thankfully I'm not in a position that I would have to answer that, but the school districts, the parents would have to then kind of do some soul searching, decide yes, it's worth it to do in person, or no, it's not. This is weighted by other external factors as well, I'm sure. What's lost in socialization if we don't have classes, for example? Uh, The free lunches that so many students depend on, better performance in general amongst our students in standardized testing, all of that and and more, all of that and more versus the risks that we're talking about in terms of um, are we sending sick children to school inadvertently and that sort of thing. Am, Am I right that all those external things are sort of baked into your formulation here? So, so those all come into the cost-benefit analysis. So, um, you know, those are certainly the benefits of having in-person schooling. 
our focus is we try to avo- you know, avoid making conclusions about whether you should do in-person schooling or not. We're, we're just focused on clarifying the cost side of things. So all of those, those things you mentioned are all excellent benefits to in-person schooling, um, but it's going to be up to the parents, the teachers, the school districts, whether they think those things outweigh the cost or the risk of, of, of going in-person. And by you know, being able to give some actual values of that risk, you know, put, put some actual numbers on that risk, then maybe it makes it a little easier to weigh those benefits. So you get to say a lot right now. I understand your concern. I can't tell you the answer, but here's the data to help you figure out the answer for yourself, that sort of thing. Exactly. And a lot of the disagreement is, again, not actually based on anything other than we just don't have good data. And so by helping you know, provide better data, our hope is that we can move the conversation away from we have to do in person or we have to do online to, okay, what's the level of risk of in-person schooling are we willing to accept? And, you know, with that, then school districts can kind of choose that level of risk in a way that, you know, will be more consistent with, uh, you know, what the parents and the families would like. So speaking of the data, I've got a couple of uh, questions about covariance for your study here. Based on the timing of your research and the vaccine rollout, is the current scenario that we're in where children 12 and up are eligible for the vaccine, is that baked into the assessment? Or if not, how does that move the data, do you think? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we published this, um, you know, back in April, which was around the time that, you know, I think the UK variant was gaining, you know, notoriety and spreading in the United States. And when we first came out with this study, um, you know, again, it's based on fall 2020 data, so there's no variants in the mix yet. Um, we were maybe a little disappointed that, okay, I don't know how practical and applicable it'll be, it'll be for the next school year because, you know, everybody will be vaccinated Um potentially. And, you know, we don't know what's going on with variants. But what I think is happening is that we're actually in a situation very similar to last fall. Yes, we have, you know, these new variants like the Delta variant that's you know, twice as uh, contagious as the, variant, as, as the original virus we were dealing with last year. But at the same time, we also have, you know, 40 to 50 percent of the population vaccinated. And so I think when you have both of those factors in play, you end up with a scenario that's, that's actually very similar to last fall. And I think these results are much more applicable to this fall than I would have guessed they would have been back in the spring. And another consideration, I assume that people would have to sort of add into their personal decision-making and, and, and risk-taking here uh, is just that, as opposed to last fall, the communities around us are a lot more back to normal in terms of activities, uh, things that we're all going and doing, a little bit more so than last year. Yeah, I mean, again, I think if you start to see spread in the community, it's possible that it may kind of grow exponentially because of that. But at the same time, a, a lot of the vaccination is, is focused on older groups, those, you know, they're out in the community and participating. So I think it kind of washes out that you'll have the Delta variant that's going to be a lot more contagious, but at the same time, you have a lot more immunity in the community than you did last fall. Um, you know, so where we fall exactly on the line, is it, you know, a little bit worse, is it a little bit better? It's hard to say, but I think that as a reasonable approximation, and because we don't have any better data, last fall might be kind of a reasonable expectation of what, what we can see this fall. Seems like almost everything about the coronavirus, every story, every anecdote, every data point, all of it can get turned into someone's talking point or someone else's cudgel. Is that happening with your study here? Uh, yeah, it's funny you should ask that. So this was a sign, I think, that we did a good job with the study. We, after we came out with the study, had people on both sides using it as evidence to support their point. So we had people that were saying, look, there's statistically significant spread in the community when you have in-person schooling, so we should have less in-person schooling. And the other side would say, look, 
the, the amount of in-person community spread is relatively small, and so we should have more in-person schooling. And so the fact that both sides are using it to try to support their argument is exactly what we want, right? We want to shift the conversation from in-person schooling bad or in-person schooling good to some kind of more nuanced and say, okay, how much in-person schooling are we willing to do if this is the amount of cases that we're going to get out of it as a result? I've been fascinated all year watching surveys back and forth about uh, educators, whether they teachers feel safe going back into the classroom. A lot of that was conducted prior to the vaccine rollouts. Uh, parents taking similar sorts of decisions about enrolling in school, perhaps taking a homeschooling approach, which is basically what we're talking about here. So let's ask mom and dad and teachers and everyone else who find the supply to them. It comes down in some form, as you've been saying here, to personal choices, information like this that you're gathering to help inform and guide those choices that people have to make for themselves and they have to make for their school districts. Is your study getting feedback in that way? Uh, we're certainly getting a lot of interest from administrators and even you know, local government officials that want to understand the study a little bit better and use it to help educate their, you know, group of parents and teachers, um, because, you know, a lot of the uh, concerns about COVID come from uncertainty. We don't know everything about the virus. It's relatively young. We don't know how, you know, it's going to spread in schools. And so I think this study helps alleviate some of that uncertainty. It doesn't provide a complete answer, but it helps alleviate some of that uncertainty. So, you know, we think, you know, based on the study, it's unlikely that in-person schooling is going to create these you know, massive exponential explosions of cases, you know, in, in a community. Um, but at the same time, it does suggest that cases are happening in schools and, and spreading to the community as well. So we're trying to reduce that uncertainty. And hopefully with the uncertainty a little bit lower, um, people will be more comfortable talking about, you know, the level of in-person schooling they're willing to accept. And what's your biggest, I guess, what's your biggest takeaway from this particular study, would you say? I was a little surprised by the result. I thought we would see evidence of more spread happening in the community as a result of schools. Um, in retrospect, uh, maybe it shouldn't be that surprising because in the fall we had kids wearing masks. And even if adults are maybe not so great at following regulations and kind of the rules, that's something that kids are really good at. And so I think kids were, were very good in the fall about wearing masks and maintaining distance and being cautious. Um, and, and so maybe it's not surprising that, you know, schools haven't been these big breeding points for COVID because, school, you know, kids are very good at following the rules. Is this a continued study project for you, for your research agenda, or perhaps for, the, for that of one of your co-authors? Part of the challenge was collecting all of the data. So we had to individually contact all the school districts in the state of Indiana to get information on what kind of instruction they were doing. Um, so that was very time intensive. Uh, we haven't talked about if we want to try to repeat this again for the fall. Um, but, you know, whether this study, you know, gets done again in the fall or we use the data from last year to look at something else, I, I think we're going to, uh, me and my colleagues, um, continue looking at topics of COVID-19 and, and related to education, especially K-12 education in, in Indiana. Well, this study, we should say, is, is called The Effect of In-Person Primary and Secondary School Instruction on County-Level SARS COVID-2 Spread in Indiana. We'll link to that in the text below the, the podcast here. Uh, you've been spending a lot of time this past year studying other trends and projections as surrounding uh, COVID and coronavirus without minimizing the practical health concerns here. A lot of fascinating data that you've been analyzing, I'm sure. What else have you been looking at that's really caught your interest of late? Once vaccination began to pick up in the, in, in the United States and Indiana in the spring, I, I shifted a lot to looking at how vaccination is affecting the spread of, of COVID-19. And the results are really striking. I mean, it, maybe in retrospect, they shouldn't seem that way, but 
the groups, the age groups that have been vaccinated well, you know, those that are you know, at 60% vaccinated or higher, the cases have been virtually flat, right? They're unaffected by these spikes, these waves that we keep hearing about. And the groups that are being affected by the waves and the spikes, those that we're seeing cases go up now, and those are primarily going up among those groups that have low vaccination rates. So, you know, those that are like 20 to 49 year, years old that are still below 50% vaccinated, that's where we're seeing the cases spike. And it's just really striking to look at you know, those that are 70 and above, are, you know, cases are virtually flat through all of these waves and these spikes that we've been experiencing. And that's because once you hit 60, maybe 70% vaccinated, um, you know, you've just eliminate so much of the risk involved that there, you know, cases just don't even spread in those communities anymore. So the next challenge becomes just getting more people to line up to take that shot. We always like to leave on a little positive note here. So with all of this in mind, give us a few optimistic takeaways from what you are examining recently. I think my most optimistic view is that every time we vaccinate somebody, that's one less person that could potentially get infected and, and spread COVID. And so even if, you know, we're looking at the vaccination rate and it's not as high as we like and it's slowing down every single person and, and every day we're vaccinating more people is one more body that's taken out of the pool of potential hosts for this virus and so it's just, it's just a question of when we get to that point that we have enough people vaccinated or, or with immunity from prior infections that you know the virus won't be able to spread effectively in our communities and and, and every day we get one day closer to that point and when it happens it's hard to say but we will get there at some point Director of the Center for Economic Education Research and Indiana University Northwest Professor of Economics, Dr. Michael Pollack. Thank you for joining us today, sir. Thank you for having me, Kenny. And we thank you for joining us as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and tune in. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. From Bloomington, Indiana, for On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith.